If you're just now joining us, welcome to Bayless. My name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to have you, whatever has you showing up on the parking lot this Sunday. This is new for us. Um, and first of all, can we just give a round of applause to everybody who pulled this off today? It was a lot of work. Okay, so uh, we got tech guys who have been trying to figure out creative solutions. Um, and uh, it just it worked. And God was really kind with the weather today. So we're just very, very grateful. Um, I today, well, first of all, before I get started, can I, if I can uh, just be honest with you for a second, it is really warm today, and I'm wearing a short sleeve short shirt underneath this, which I realize is kind of a fashion faux pas for many of you, like underneath a jacket, but I'm going to take my jacket off, I don't really care. But regardless, today we are uh, going to be talking uh, about God's Word. Um, we're going to be, every Sunday, it's our job here, thanks Drew, look at that. Um, every Sunday, that's what we do is we open up God's Word and we let Him speak first and make sense of those words. And so I would encourage you to keep a Bible open. If you do not have a Bible, you can look on your phone today. And we actually have copies, so don't leave today without one. We've got copies, uh, paperback copies we'd love to give you. If you know somebody else who'd use a Bible, we'd love to give it to you. On your phone, if you're looking for an app that you can access the Bible with, Version is excellent. Y-O-U version, and you can download that right now, uh, no harm, and go to uh, the book of John, which you'll look for the New Testament. If you're in a paper Bible, go to your table of contents, the very beginning. Very, very beginning. It's one of four Gospels, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Now, I know that uh, this morning, we're coming from a variety of different places, especially on Easter. And it's one of the things I love about Easter, actually, is that we have people from, we're in a variety of different places spiritually. It's very normal, actually, on a Sunday morning, even at Bayless, to have people who are investigating the claims of Christ and seeing the life-transforming of the gospel, claims of the gospel, life-transforming power of the gospel um, on display with that community. And so, but nonetheless, I recognize some of us um, are only here because someone dragged us here, and I hope today that you find that God's word is nonetheless interrupts us with some much-needed news of resurrection power. Easter is the most important day, not only in the life of a Christian, but Christians understand for every single human being. Resurrection Day is more important than Christmas. It's more important than the opening day of the Cardinals. It is the Super, de Super Bowl for the Christian, because today we celebrate so much more than bunnies or chocolate or springtime. Today we celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That Jesus is not dead, he is alive. As if that was the greatest news that you could ever receive, because Christians understand that it indeed is. Christians do not simply follow a dead, revered teacher. Now, I recognize that might um, be against some of our preconceptions about Christianity. And instead, every Christian, a biblical Christian, hopes in a risen very much alive Savior and Lord. And is this day, or specifically the first Easter, which Christians understand to be the hinge point of all of history, the assurance of hope for the hopeless, the assurance that things won't always be this way, that all of our darkness can't stop the light from getting through, the assurance that Christ's life is only the beginning. He is risen, friends. Friends, I... I think I need Easter more than ever, especially after the last year that we've had. I need a clear note of resurrection hope breaking the buzzing, buzzing static of my life, of 
the anxiety and apprehensions that swirl around us or are just on every channel in the news cycle, we need permission more than ever to refuse despair, to give ourselves to hope instead of fear, not because we are blind to the times at all, but because Christians know who has walked out of, away from the grave. Today of all days, we need to shout back to dark and uncertain times, He is risen. He is risen indeed. So again, I recognize that some of us aren't as excited as I am about today. Uh, you, again, you may not be. I have been a pastor long enough to know some of us are only here because our grandmother's been bugging us for so long, or our spouse told us that it would just be one day out of the year, or finally to get that friend or neighbor off of your back. Still, some of us finally worked up the courage to try church again, trying to talk ourselves, even now, out of making a quick exit. And still others of us have been in church for much of our lives. And as much as we want to care about Easter, today we're thinking about our lunch plans or how uncomfortable these white chairs are. But actually, they're not too bad. Truth is, for people like us, we're not always looking for Easter hope. And we may be as surprised to find it as those who found it first 2,000 years ago. Today, we're going to consider just one of these people. In fact, we're going to consider the very first person to, to see, to speak with, to embrace Jesus on the other side of the grave, a woman named Mary Magdalene. And so, I hope you'll keep your Bible open to chapter 20. Otherwise, you're bound to get bored because all that we really want to do during this time is to talk about God's Word and how it impacts our lives. If you're trying to find it, again, you can find it at the table of contents in your Bible, or if you go to the app, go to New, the New Testament in the book of John. We're going to consider this passage in three parts. The grave robber, the gardener, and the God-man. Let's start with the first. You ready? Our passage picks up just one day and two nights since the arrest and betrayal of Jesus Christ. One day and two nights since the one who was called prophet, miracle worker, even king of the Jews, has now been declared a blasphemer and enemy of state. One day and two nights since the one who removed shame was put to shame, since the one who healed others was bruised and broken, since the self-declared son of God had been stripped, mocked, and strung up. One day and two nights since his flesh had been stapled by iron nails to a wooden crossbeams, like a living rack of ribs hung upon Roman meat hooks. Since Jesus pushed his flesh, that torn flesh, up rough wood on nail-pierced feet that he just might catch another breath. One day and two nights since Jesus was despised and rejected, since those who once welcomed him as king now turned their heads away in mockery or disgust. They turned their heads away from this blood and spit-covered mess of a man, scarcely recognizable now as one. One day and two nights since Jesus gave up his life, crying, it is finished. Our passage picks up just one day and two nights since the death of the one that many called teacher. At the end, Jesus died nearly alone, abandoned by his closest friends, save a handful who remained for nearly the whole event, including the woman Mary of Magdala, or sometimes is known Mary Magdalene. You have to wonder in those final moments what kind of memories came to her mind. Now, I find it interesting, though, how interested our culture is in Mary Magdalene these days. 
even among those who don't consider themselves necessarily Christians. In fact, it's not uncommon to see specials air this time of year on the History Channel or articles published in the New York Times claiming all sorts of crazy things about this Mary, all of which, have, I have to tell you, have just been roundly disproven. She wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't the 13th apostle. She wasn't the wife of Jesus. But still, what we do know about Mary from the Christian scriptures turns out to be far more interesting, I think. In fact, Mary would not have only seen but experienced the power of Jesus firsthand. She used to be an outcast. The scriptures tell us she was a living home, not for just one demon, a spiritual force committed against the purposes and power of God, but seven demons. She had been freed by Jesus himself, and soon after she began to follow him, following Jesus and his closest friends as they traveled, caring for their needs. She may be one of the first disciples, one of the disciples actually to uh, have followed Jesus the longest after the original 12. Jesus had been her Rabboni, our passage tells us, an informal name for teacher for nearly three years. She may have been at his feet during the parable of the Good Samaritan or among the hungry crowds fed by miraculous loaves and fish. She may have heard the disciples recount his walking on the water or shouted Hosanna as he rode into Jerusalem. Who would have thought now that she would be watching his death? A death following an unjust trial, countless beatings and humiliations, the crowds turning mob, crying, crucify him, crucify him. This man who had been their world, without whom she would still be in the dark. She couldn't leave him now. And yet who would have thought she would be watching their world come undone? Again, it seems that many had fled for fear of Jesus' enemies. After all, they didn't want to be next in line. But Mary, along with others, remained for Jesus' final cries until the nails were pulled, until his flesh was peeled from the timbers, until the broken body was taken to a donated tomb just yards away for a hasty burial. It seems that the hurried process of his burial pained her and the other women watching, watching as his body was hastily wrapped in linen and whatever spices they had in hand with Sabbath just moments away. It seemed a worse cruelty to her to leave his underprepared body like this. And so, after the worst Sabbath that anyone had yet endured, she set out on Sunday morning, the first day of the Jewish week, at the first glimmers of dawn, whether on her own at first or with the other women who accompanied her to the tomb, we're not sure, but she set out for the tomb nonetheless to see the body. But not just to see the body, but to make sure that the body of their teacher, even as it was already starting to decay, would receive a dignified burial, a last act of love for the one that they had lost. Only when she showed up, she found much to her distress that the body was gone. Even in the darkened garden, she could see the grave, see the grave was opened and she could not understand why had someone taken him. It wouldn't be beyond imagination, you see. Even though Jesus had nothing, his very clothes were gambled away. But maybe someone had broken in to see whether Joseph of Arimathea, to whom the tomb belonged, had laid up other treasures there. Maybe the Romans themselves had removed the body, took it to one of the group graves where criminals would be deposited, a last act of cruelty. And so, breaking off from the other women, she ran to get the only ones she thought could help. 
Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends. And sure enough, they confirmed it, racing one another to the tomb. They confirmed it. The body was gone. Only the linen cloths and the folded face covering had been left behind. And then sometime after they left, Mary returned, this time not just grief-stricken, but mortified. Who could do such a thing? Weeping outside the tomb, she decided to look in. Perhaps for the first time, and, and to what must have been her shock, she found two men, dressed in white, sitting there. But of course, according to John, they're, they're not merely men, they're angels. But she doesn't seem to register it. Perhaps because her mind was cloudy or it was difficult to see in the dim light with her puffy eyes, she doesn't seem to recognize angels right in front of her eyes. In fact, it seems she wonders if these two men are the ones who took Jesus away, which leads to our second part, the gardener. The angels ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, we, don't, we should not hear this as some sexist slight. I realize some of us, when we hear that woman, it feels a little bit like a diminishing mansplaining. It's really actually more uh, respectful than it sounds. It's more like addressing someone, ma'am, in the society. Ma'am, why are you weeping? Still, the question isn't exactly that sensitive, is it? I mean, imagine if I, if I addressed that to, said that to my wife. Why are you weeping? I might try that once, but I'll never say that again. We'll come back to this, but notice she hears someone behind her rustling in the garden, a man she assumes is a common gardener out to get his work done before the heat of the day who asks her the same question, woman, why are you weeping? I realize it sounds dismissive, doesn't it? Insensitive at least. After all, when Jesus stood by the grave of Lazarus, perhaps the last time that Jesus stood beside a tomb, he wept too. So why this why? To answer that question, we need to look at the next question that Jesus asked, the one she assumed to be the gardener. Whom are you seeking? Again, who is it that Mary is seeking? Some of us might say it's, Christ, it's Jesus. Well, it's actually not. After all, the reason she doesn't see this man clearly isn't because she's blinded with tears, but because she isn't looking for Jesus at all. And why would she? She's, she knows him to be dead. She watched it happen. She had seen him die, and she had seen him buried. Jesus was dead. No, she is looking for a grave robber, someone to blame or someone who can make it right. Someone, surely, from these three men can help her. Friends, it might seem strange that she can't even recognize angels or even Jesus standing in front of her, but isn't it at the moments of our deepest grief that it is most difficult to see God? Maybe you know moments like this where you hit bottom, only the bottom then fell out. Life so often leaves us spiraling out of control despite how desperately you try to hold on. Sometimes it is impossible to keep your grip in those moments, often we aren't looking for God to show up at all. Instead, all we can think to do is go looking for a grave robber. In our moments of panic or loss, sometimes all we want to do is find someone to blame or someone to make it right. Convinced if I could just find them, I would be able to gain control. I'd be able to regain my balance. 
I'd be able to catch my breath. And so often, it blinds us to God's very real presence in the midst. We can't see God at work often because we don't expect God to be working. We, we can't wait around for help, we figure. After all, we think God helps those who help themselves. In fact, even though you showed up today, some of us, again, was on, we, uh, we don't intend on returning for some time. It's a one-time thing for us. Maybe Easter gets us extra points with God, or at least your spouse. But the reality is, we not only see very little, little need for the church, we don't expect God to show up, at least for you. But still, I've seen others, many religious people actually, who assume that God shows up, but when it comes down to it, God is just a means to an end. It shows up particularly in their prayer lives. They come to God to clean up things, to make things better, to come through on what they feel they deserve. But when it comes down to it, they're not looking for God, they're looking around God. They're looking past God for what God can only provide. God himself becomes a means to an end. Friend, can I ask you honestly the same question that Jesus asked? Who or what are you seeking? The thing is, all of us are like Mary in a way. We may be seeking a grave robber, someone to blame or to make things right, or maybe seeking a gardener, maybe God himself to point me in the right, right direction. But if none of us, but none of us, at least on our own, are really seeking on our own, really looking for Jesus. Before we move on, there's at least one more reason many of us aren't looking for Jesus. And it's because we have a hard time believing this claim that Jesus raised bodily from the dead. See, the Christian claim isn't like he resurrected as a zombie, that he simply resuscitated after getting some rest in the tomb, but that Jesus, once dead, is now alive, and he awakened not just to real life, but to immortality. I know this claim is difficult for many modern people to accept. After all, death is final for us. Who do you know has walked away from death? I realize some have dismissed it as an invention of the church or spiritualized it as some sort of metaphysical metaphor about how we transcend the worst in our lives. We may not realize it, but the historical and literary evidence for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is fairly staggering. I don't have time to go into it today. We have more things to do, at least in deep detail, but according to many scholars, including philosopher William Lane Craig, there are at least four empirically verifiable facts based on multiple independent sources. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of, the, member of the Sanhedrin, in a tomb. Fact number two, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact number three, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. In fact, number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Obviously, we can't play back security footage from that day, but Craig argues that based on these facts and others, the most likely explanation is that Jesus indeed rose bodily from the dead. And I'd agree. But still, this doesn't tell us, this might 
Again, getting at the uh, reliability of the resurrection doesn't tell us why the resurrection matters, does it? See, the reason it matters that Jesus is actually standing in front of Mary, according to John, even though she did not realize it yet, has to do with this seemingly insensitive question, why are you weeping? The resurrection, friends, doesn't simply matter because it happened, according to the scriptures, but because of what it accomplished. You see, according to Jesus' own claims, the resurrection was proof positive that God's great work to rescue humanity was finished. The great cost of our sin, the reason for death itself, our persistent rejection of God, seeking everything but Him, which not only broke our hearts, but broke our world. That great record of wrong, which we could not repair, which we could not make right, no matter how much right we tried to do. That great record of wrong, which was nailed with Jesus to the cross, though innocent of guilt Himself, that great cost had been paid. The resurrection is proof positive. The check had been cleared. The wrath had been wrung out. And with it, the endless cycle of sin, which led to misery, which led to death, was broken. And a new world was cresting on the horizon. As C.S. Lewis puts it, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Christians put so much weight on these claims. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave, Christians are above all people most to be pitied. Because that means that their life, their hope is a false hope, that there is no rescue, there is no final assurance, no life after the dead, any meaning is just a self-derived one, this is why the resurrection matters, because when Jesus stepped out physically, bodily from the tomb, the roots of death and misery were severed. The undefeatable was defeated. The locked door was forced open. When Jesus stepped out physically, bodily from that tomb, all things sad would soon be made untrue. In other words, Jesus says to those who would trust in him, for the forgiveness of sins, that would look to his cross and say, that was the death that I deserved and it has been done for me. That the greatest work has been finished, regardless of what background you come from. Those who would look upon Jesus for the forgiveness of the sin, their sins would hear Jesus say back to them, why are you weeping? That doesn't mean that life is not full of hardship and loss and unanswered questions. There are many, perhaps especially for Christians, but it does mean that we, that Christians know the end of the story is not death. The end of the story is life. And so we can say, even in the darkest and hardest of times, even through mourning, why are you weeping? Because we know one day, tears themselves will be wiped away by the risen Christ. Friends, I don't know where you're at. You may be jaded when it comes to church. You may be carrying a whole host of doubts. You may be showing up here for the 500th time. I don't know what you came here seeking, but Jesus is what you need. And like Mary, he isn't far from you. He isn't waiting for you to seek him out, and that is good news for someone like me. In fact, Jesus is seeking us. 
Notice Jesus' next words in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's it. Mary. But notice how much is packed into that one word. The Bible will claim on one hand that Jesus, that God is the transcendent creator of all things, the author and sustainer of all of life, that he wears the galaxies as rings on his fingers. But the Bible does not picture this God as some grand watchmaker who winds up the world and then distances himself from it, some sort of distant force otherwise occupied with more important things. No, Jesus shows us here that God is a pursuing God, the God who knows you, who addresses you, who seeks you out. It makes me think of Jesus' words in John 10, verses 3 through 4. To him, the gatekeeper opens, speaking of Jesus as the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Even though she had not recognized his face, Mary knew that voice. It's all it took for her to see that this was no grave robber or gardener. As strange as it would have been for her to realize, she knew this could only be Jesus. When he calls out Mary, though, I, friend, I want you to hear your name there. The question is, do you recognize his voice? Do you recognize in him what you've actually been seeking for your whole life, seeking after, even though you may have not known him by name? This, in many ways, is the nature of faith, recognizing in Jesus the voice of your Savior. It is only his world, his word that reveals himself, only his word that opens our eyes to it, but his sheep recognize it nonetheless. Notice Mary still has much to learn about Jesus. She still, even when seeing Jesus, refers to him as teacher. Not the Messiah he is, fully God and fully man, soon to ascend, as he says, to God's right hand. In fact, she assumes that he is going to disappear again, and she gets desperate, desperately clinging to his feet. Jesus, don't leave again. Only Jesus telling her, you need to let me go, Mary. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean you have all of your questions answered or doubts addressed. Coming to Jesus doesn't even mean that you understand all that he claims or what it will look like to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. But still, are you willing for your opinions to change about Jesus? Have you already made up your mind? Are you ready for Jesus to interrupt you, for him to be different than who you have assumed him to be? Friends, you may have come here convinced that there was no truth to be found in Christianity. For once, doubt your own doubts. Ask God, God, where might you be taking me? What if these things might actually be true? Do you recognize in Jesus the voice of your Savior? In fact, the true joy of this passage is not that we're left to figure it out. Hopefully feel our way to God if we can. I realize some of us, that's how we view God. And some of us, we are convinced that God could never love someone like me, could not call out to someone like me. If, any, if people knew here the kind of baggage we come with, the kind of doubts we carry. Friends, God is not looking for a resume. He's looking for recognition. He's looking for faith. The one, the small, desperate faith of one who sees in him and hears in his voice the voice of their Savior. 
and is the risen Christ who interrupts the doubters and disbelievers. He seeks the ones who were not seeking him. Friends, there could be no better way for you to celebrate Easter than to take in faith the one whom Easter is about, even with your doubts, your baggage, and questions. In fact, I want to encourage you to stick around with them. You want to know the true goodness and beauty of Jesus? Stick around in the weeks to come in a community where we are experiencing this transforming power firsthand, where we together as beggars pointing one another to the bread are trying to make sense of these claims for all of life and seeing him show off through people like us. As Amazing Grace says it again, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Come among fellow wretches looking to the same amazing grace that is found in this king. But friends, again, I know many of us are at different places, and so even today as we prepare to worship, I want to pray for you. And I want to spend some time for you to be reflecting on why God has brought you here today. I believe that God has brought each of us here with purpose. You may not agree with that, but still I would ask you, Pray the dangerous prayer of God, where are you leading me? What are you doing? What if these things might actually be true? And friends, let's go now to the God of life who calls himself the resurrection and life. Jesus, we know that we still understand so little of what your grace accomplished on that day. Lord, we let alone do our lives walk in step with it. Even for the Christians here, we know that our story is not that we were seeking God, we were seeking everything else. God, thank you that in your mercy you have seen us exactly as we are. You don't ask us to pretend, and instead you tell us to stop pretending to ourselves that we might see ourselves rightly. Would we hear in this voice that Mary recognizes, will we hear in it the voice of our Savior and Lord? Will we hear Jesus calling out to us, offering us his same life of hope in dark and uncertain times? And even as we may still not be ready to confess faith in his name, Lord, would we stick around investigating the claims of Christ that are made sense of in his word? Thank you, Lord, that today of all days that Christians can shout back at the darkness, he is risen. One day we are going to see him face to face saying he is risen indeed. Lord, we pray all these things for the wonderful matchless name of Jesus Christ, for whom we do all things. Amen.